0: Welcome to another episode of the Cornet Northern California Chapter podcast. This is Melissa Pacey, principal at HGA Architects, member of the Leadership Council, and your host today. Our podcast today features Alexis McGill-Johnson, the executive director of the Perception Institute and a social activist focused on improving the lives of young people with an emphasis on youth of color. In 2004, Alexis worked with Sean Combs on the Voter Die campaign to empower young people through education. This movement led to the most significant increase in youth voter engagement in over a decade. Alexis is here today to speak about implicit bias for women of Cornet and graciously agreed to sit down with us for a one-on-one chat. To introduce the importance of Alexis's work and her relevance to Cornet, I'm sitting with Clorinda Bishalia, a senior manager at NetApp. A huge thanks go to Clorinda for setting up not only this event, but arranging our podcast today. Hi, Clorinda. Hi, Melissa. So the Women of Cornet has engaged Alexis as a continuation of the Identity, Diversity, and Inclusion program in February. Can you talk a little bit about the feedback you received and why you're interested in continuing this dialogue?
1: We had a large audience at that event. Everybody loved it. It felt like we were at um, kind of a talk show, in fact. It was a very personal conversation between these two women who are extremely accomplished. And you know, they talked about how it felt to be a you know, black professional woman in America. And um, we had a lot of positive feedback for that event. And we also had some interesting, I won't say negative feedbacks, but some interesting comments that led me to realize that we needed to further the conversation about um, bias and how to talk about bias, how to talk about diversity, how to talk about different cultures and how to make our workplaces stronger by being more inclusive.
0: So what exactly are Alexis's credentials and why was she selected to host this evening?
1: I actually heard her first on NPR After the Starbucks incident in Philadelphia, in which the two guys were trying to have a meeting in a Starbucks and got kicked out while being black, the reaction was uh, swift and furious. And Starbucks said that they would close all of their branches to have training for their employees. And then Starbucks was criticized to say, oh, well, how can anybody learn anything in two hours? And that's when I heard Alexis's piece on NPR you know, And in 30 seconds, she had really unpacked some science, given some very clear demonstrations. And um, I thought that that would be a really good, she would be a really good person for us to uh, learn more about. And I looked her up and saw all the credentials from Yale and Princeton and the work that she'd been doing with um, Sean Combs and said, wow, this person really, you know, this group seems like they're doing important work. It would be great to have them at Cornette. Why
0: do you think our listeners will want to hear this podcast today?
1: Well, I hope that they want to expand their knowledge of how what implicit bias is and how to identify Biases that they might already con- that they might already have, and help to work out and work through what those are, where we might be more successful in accepting other people, both in our workplace but even in our communities, and that you know we stop to we stop arguing.
0: Yeah, well, or even just hearing each other in a kind of yeah. non-threatening way.
1: Yes, right.
0: Thank you. And so I'm wondering um, if this is. And I think it is something that's maybe important to you personally as well. If you could talk a little bit about about that with us.
1: Well, it is important to me personally, because um, first of all, I see my kids with friends from all over. And I think that we all are richer for including different people and different from different backgrounds in our lives. And I think that There have been so many places where you hear or read about, well, had women been included in that group, in that focus group, you know, the results or the decisions or the kinds of, um, you know, design changes might have been different for some product or some place, right? Or the fact that, you know, women aren't taken into account when they're studying the results of medicine or different medicines and clinical studies. And so all of those things are really important for inclusion purposes. And I just think that, you know, so much of our society is blinded to the need to diversify and the and the value of diversification. So I've also been called out for, you know, blindness to people who are different than me. And I'd like to, and I've been trying to work on that, but I'd like to make a point of improving that. And I'm hoping that from the workshop today that I'll get some, you know, more effective tools in terms of how to um, improve upon things that I already know are, you know, shortcomings.
0: Great. Well, thank you again. And now on to our program. Hi, Alexis. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. Good. Thanks. And thank you so much for being with us today. We're really excited to have you. It's my pleasure. So right off the bat, I thought it would be helpful and important to our listeners to understand exactly what implicit bias is. Could you explain this and why it's something we need to more actively be thinking about?
2: Absolutely. So implicit bias is our brain's um, automatic Um, association of certain negative stereotypes about particular groups of people. Um, It it lives in our unconscious brain. Um, Our brains process upwards of 11 million bits of information unconsciously every second in the same amount of time we process about 10 to 40 bits of information consciously. And so bias actually becomes a way for our brains to um, uh, just to help us make sense, make meaning of the world. And when those those, um, categories are negative, the traits that that we think about are negative, they become embedded in our brain and they make it harder for us to to actually see someone without that stereotype. So it becomes really important in our kind of world today because uh, having bias can actually impact our behavior in a number of ways. If we're teachers, uh, we may um, give different preferential treatment to to certain students. If we are doctors, we may not elicit the right information. If we are police officers, we may not be able to identify the right suspect. Um, And if we're just co-workers. We may evaluate um, one's uh, performance differently because negative stereotypes get triggered in our brain. I
0: think that's really helpful for everyone. I think something else that a lot of people do that they might not realize is that they think that they're not stereotyping and so they kind of have a lack of awareness about the subject altogether. Um, what would you be able to help our listeners with so that they can kind of think about this on their own and kind of start to influence their own actions more positively?
2: Yeah. So you mean like, like what, what does it feel like to have your unconscious network, um, Correct. activated? Yeah. Um, can I do a little, um, exercise with you? you can. Okay. It requires good I, participation. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I'm going to, I'm just going to trigger some of your associations. So the radius of a wheel. So when you think about bike riding and you have the wheel of a bicycle, what is the, the radius called? The spoke? A spoke. Okay, good. No, it yeah. was good. Uh, yeah. so brain working, Brain I'm <laughs> yeah. like, don't away. get this one wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't no. want to get the brain exercise wrong. Right. Okay, so the radius of a wheel is called a? Spoke. Okay. The radius of a wheel is called a? Spoke? I, sorry. <laughs> I was trying to get us into the. mood. okay.
0: One more time. Okay, I'm like, wait, it's still a spoke. Right? <laughs> it hasn't changed. Okay. It
2: hasn't changed. Okay. The radius of a wheel is called a spoke. I don't drink Pepsi. I like coke. I tell you something funny. It's a joke. The white part of an egg is called a yolk. The white part of an egg is uh, called a.
0: What is the white part of the egg called? The white part?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps an egg white? Egg white, yeah. yeah. Or a shell. <laughs> <laughs> you see how quickly yeah. your brain kind of wanted Absolutely. to fill in the information. When you see a pattern, your brain recognizes that that information and it wants to immediately get that gold star, right? Yeah. Our brains like to be right. We have a very strong desire to, um, to to make meaning and to make sense of all of those um, of all of the information coming towards us. And so when we fall into pattern recognition, when we fall into associations that we expect to happen based on our memories or other things that automatic process just takes over, and sometimes it's really hard for us to override, even when we're just, you know, when we were thinking about spoke, mm-hmm. you could see your brain working, and by the time it was like, okay, I see where she's going, I see where right. she's going, and then when that little trick came in at the end... I
0: knew there was going to be a trick, but I just wasn't but still, so, It's still know. so,
2: even when yeah. you know you're yeah. going to have that conversation, it still is really hard to override in the moment.
0: Right, especially when speed is...
2: Yes, Yes, exactly. And that's actually when we're most vulnerable around bias, right? When we are multitasking, when we are tired, when we are under time pressure, um, when we may be impaired for whatever reason, um, and we have to make quick Quick judgments, quick decisions without a lot of information. Um, sounds like most of us, right? Who are you know constantly on our phones and trying to answer that last email and you know and, and interact with someone at the same time. We're more vulnerable um, to leaning into the stereotypes that may exist around us because our brains need to make shortcuts for us to be efficient people. Right. And so, really, kind of bringing conscious awareness to our
0: actions and really thinking through things rather than those kind of snap judgments that a lot of us are used to making.
2: Yes, yeah, slowing down is is critically important. I will say when I started this work, uh, particularly around racial bias, uh, my concern was. To, or rather, I would say my goal was to find the stop, drop, and roll for, you know, for racial bias. Like, right. what are the three things that we can do in the moment where we disrupt and we're able to, to keep, um, keep moving um, without bias and recognize. Just given how quickly our brains override things, that slowing down is a piece of that. But it really is uh, requires us learning new patterns and recognition. For example, I uh, flew out from New York, as I was uh, mentioning, and my pilot was a woman and I almost never have a female pilot, but I noticed that when her, when her uh, voice came on over the, over the loudspeaker, I, my brain had an automatic, like, oh my gosh, we're being flown by women today. And I'm, you know, feminist, you know, you know, women's empowerment, Woman, and yet um, my brain had a few kind of little hiccups in the middle of it because it was just like, wow, this is weird, and how should I think about that? And you know, half of me was girl power, and half of me was like, wow, it's just so interesting. Women don't normally fly planes. What is this going to be like? Like, it's going to be any different than anyone else flying. Right. Well, and I think a little bit of it
0: is having an awareness that we're thinking about it, right? Like, it doesn't make it wrong or right being able to have that dialogue with each other and kind of that conscious awareness of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I use the numbers as these really, really big numbers, 11 million bits of information processed unconsciously, and you're only aware of 40 bits of information consciously, which means that we have to create these schemas. We have to know that this is a glass in front of me. I have to know that this is a chair so I don't have to relearn it every single day. But creating awareness um, can also trigger anxiety if we just, you know, become conscious of the stereotypes that we may hold about a particular group we can become anxious about whether or not those stereotypes may show up. And so we can't really talk about um, implicit bias without also talking about the, the um, largely racial or gender anxiety that may show up in ourselves when, we, when our brain is saying, don't notice that, don't notice that stereotype, don't notice that stereotype. It kind of gets tired of trying to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we end up doing the thing that we didn't want to do, calling the person by the wrong name, um, you know, in ways that, that can be harmful to other folks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So
0: most of our audience is made up of real estate professionals, so I thought it would be helpful to talk about why having a more diverse makeup is important and beneficial to our industry. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about why you could see that helping us.
2: I think that bias is, um, first of all, is a social bias. When you take an implicit association test, which is how we measure unconscious bias, Um, What we're we're actually diagnosing is not kind of an individual DNA. What we're looking at is how you are absorbing the social um, representation of a particular group. And so who we see on TV, who we see in particular roles, um, who we see as leaders. Those are the sorts of things that influence our, um, our categorization of various groups. And so it matters in industries that aren't particularly diverse, that um, will be going out and navigating worlds that are increasingly diverse, the demographic change, um, the gendered, um, you know, the, the kind of increase of women in, in leadership, um, as well as racial demographic change, requires us to see different kind of representation. And so there's a strong business case. Um, you know, there's a feel-good case of we just want to be better people and we want to see people without stereotypes. But I actually think there's a really strong business case, particularly for organizations that, um, or industries that are consumer facing with um, professionals that will will increasingly not look like them. So it's really important to learn a set of behaviors in order to uh, to be able to navigate and make sure that everyone has a sense of, of belonging and respect within their um, within their industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important too as you know real
0: estate professionals who are kind of creating a lot of the built environment to take in all of that while well, they're creating these things that sometimes are a little bit more concrete and maybe not accommodating everyone like they should be.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, we've seen that, right, with the um, um, with the ABLE movement, right? Mm-hmm. That just just kind of demanding a sense of belonging and welcoming that doesn't marginalize a community because they have a different set of abilities um, has been really transformative, I think, within the, with the real estate and design business. And I think that's been a really positive um, benefit for all of us to, to be able to stop and recognize Um, really to kind of break down some of our own assumptions about what what we think people need and actually build a a better environment for people to do so.
0: I've been doing some research um, about gender in the workplace and reading a little bit about from Jackson Katz and Michael Kimmel about how, you know, ideally white men are kind of leading this you know, gender equity charge. And I was thinking about a little bit more and thinking about maybe there's a diverse way to lead those ty- types of efforts. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think it's uh, bravo, right, that they are out there and they are leading this conversation and they actually see themselves having a stake and being a stakeholder in a more diverse um um, uh, community. I think that what's um, one of the things that we talk about often at, at Perception, particularly in the workplace, is this idea of cognitive load, this cognitive burden. That oftentimes, if you are um, if you are not in the dominant group, you carry a different set of burden. Right? You carry a different load um, just to navigate your day um, because you're worried about perceptions of how you may be seen or or, or perceived as a um, as a leader, right, and so for many women, you know, or for, for for many Americans, when we say the word leader, they have an image in their head that is largely male, that is largely white, um, and it's not obviously inconsistent with the representation we see. And so, for us to kind of break through some, some of those barriers, we um, we engage in a set of practices to kind of mirror what that looks like, as opposed to um, as opposed to just showing up being our whole selves in, in important ways. And so that means we're carrying the burden. We're carrying that that load that is Taking away from the actual work that we want to do in the workplace, right? So we're kind of we have this divided brain. I'm walking through the day. I'm I'm managing perceptions of me and my identity, and then I'm also trying to get my work done, right? And so um, when you have members of a dominant group take on that additional burden to navigate, what does it mean to be able to raise their hand and you know when they see something that they feel may be um, you know ambiguously discriminatory or um, just may may raise some questions about whether or not this you know the room is the right mix of folks it becomes more it becomes very powerful I wouldn't say more powerful but it it does show that um, that um, there's an intent to create a broader community to uh, to address these issues as opposed to one group constantly holding up the mirror um, which is you know again another burden.
0: On average, women are earning about $0.78 for every dollar that a man earns, Um, and there's been a lot of recent press about Google and Salesforce making extra efforts to reduce this by evaluating disparities um, in both contributions and experience, but then they kind of both stated that kind of right after that happens, they're back to that disparity again, Um, and it seems to me that there's probably a lot of implicit bias happening there that they don't realize. And so can you talk about that and how that might be playing a role in what they could maybe be doing to help even the keel a bit?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think just starting with, with one of your earlier points, right? That awareness is important, right? And and y- having this a shared language around um, disparity and what may be driving disparity is critically important. Collecting the data so that we know that um, that uh, pay equity is not um, is not equitable um, is really really important. And I would actually add that when you when you cut that data. By race or add a layer of race onto it, what we notice is that white women make 78 cents to uh, to man's dollar, Latina women um, or as black women I think are 64 64 cents to a dollar, and Latina women are 53 or 54 cents to a dollar. So that um, that disparity when you layer in multiple identities becomes really really um, important to understand. And so data helps us um, kind of doubt our own objectivity and be uh, be very accountable. Um, there have been a number of really great uh, um, interventions that have been driven by the science, things like blind resumes, things like structured interviews, ways to bring people into a space and um, create um, more analysis on salary bans as well. I think that what happens in that dynamic you're talking about where they've done the work to actually identify the disparity and then they say, okay, now what? And then they end up you know, continuing to perpetuate the disparity is the fact that we don't actually look at Um, how um, bias and anxiety play out in other interpersonal interactions that actually impact um product evaluation and performance management and so uh when you have um you know access to uh you know you have someone who's who's come in the door equally as you know a woman and and a man come in the door and you still have replication of an old boy network or just informal information that helps someone get in from in front of a client um get a flashy deal get access to um to their mentors, networks, those sorts of things actually impact much—you know—on a much greater level someone's rise and someone's ability to actually um, create equity within a firm. Um, less so on the on the kind of uh, important but but perhaps cosmetic at this point kind of op, um, options of just bringing people in the door. It's that work that really impacts how we evaluate how we give feedback, how we um, how we position people with assignments um, and we have to ask ourselves right are we think about the last five people that that you mentored think of the last five people that that sponsored uh, that you sponsored. Um, or that sponsored you, you know, what do they look like and and why do you think they were engaged in this way and did, is is um, is there a same type of person that consistently, you know, that, that person may mentor that you are, are, are seeking to mentor? Those are often better ways to help us disrupt bias from a just individual tactically what-can-I-do practice um, that really are very nice complements to some of the other uh, bias reduction um, uh uh, options that exist. Um, you've
0: obviously had a lot of success educating large groups through creative techniques. Uh, for those of us that aren't experts on the topic, myself included, what can we do to help spread awareness and educate our peers?
2: So I think it's a great question. I think it's really important that um, we recognize why people don't want to engage in conversations around bias. Um, And that has a lot to do with the fact that um, we fear, you know, living in a world that is essentially unfair. And, you know, the presence of bias, the presence of judgment, um, the presence of discrimination is completely contrary to the values that we have, um, that we've been socialized around how we should be practicing fairness. And that presents a paradox that's really important to help people resolve people fear that conversation because they also worry that they will be implicated in that process, right? That they may be holding some, some lever that they're not using to advance um, a, a more equitable society. And that feels, you know, very directly, personally responsible. Um, and so um, so part of what we have to do in educating people is is not just holding up the mirror, but also disarming, right? That that bias, as, as you said earlier, bias is, is essentially human. It's how our brains have evolved to, you know just to navigate through the day and so having those conversations um, from that standpoint becomes really really important disarming that anxiety that can exist um, that's been ingrained is, is really really important then I think it's really about about showing people that there is a muscle that we have that we're not flexing all the way through this idea that you know when you see something that's explicitly biased right when you see someone being like completely hostilely, sexist or blatantly racist, when we think about kind of um, marchers in Charlottesville, like things where your, your brain is just completely on fire and you're incensed that's a feeling that's really, really important um, to recognize because that's a muscle that you have to fight discrimination. When you see the kind of preponderance of um, examples of bias that we, you know, uh, navigate oftentimes, the the going into a meeting um, as, a, as the senior woman leader and, um, you know, the client talking to your junior male colleague, you know, the things that are kind of, I, right, over and over again that you kind of I- experience um, um, and the things that are, that are largely kind of the, the broad media stories that we've seen. It's, it's kind of like a preponderance of evidence that this bias, the way our brains are functioning, is really, really um, is really, really powerful in so many different incidents that that, that makes a huge um, impact. It's the ambiguous, Bias that makes is the hardest, really, to kind of show because when you have a um, a way to explain something away that sounds reasonable, it's harder to make that case. And so I often start with the the more blatant examples, um, so that people understand the difference between kind of what we're talking about, which is um, you know uh, the difference between kind of what's explicit versus what is implicit and ambiguous, um, because that's really where the work is. Um, and I think. Once you start disarming um, people and say this is actually largely a social bias, um, it helps people kind of uh, engage in the conversation in a different way. I think the other piece of this is that most people. It, it just go back to the concept of fairness. Ninety percent of Americans believe um, themselves to be fair, right? They believe in the in the um, that they uh, that races are equal, ethnicities are equal, and that genders are equal, right? So, you're starting off from a place where people actually fundamentally want to do the right thing. And yet we see the disparity. We see the disparity in the pay equity. We see the disparity in you know um, any sector that you could possibly imagine. So the question that we raise at Perception is, have we been taught to practice fairness in the wrong way? Is it because we believe so much in these concepts like objectivity and meritocracy, colorblindness, gender blindness, that we've allowed ourselves to to behave in one way towards an aspiration where our brains actually don't allow us to do that because we have these embedded stereotypes that we have to constantly work through to get there. Um, So I think it's really important to to challenge people in some of their core assumptions of how they believe they're practicing these various um, aspirations towards fairness showing them the overwhelming amount of evidence, we try to make a case, we invite skeptics into the conversation, because not everybody wants to have the conversation. But when you see an overwhelming amount of evidence, um, it makes it harder for your brain to, to, to essentially turn off.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it leads me to my next thought, which is maybe a little bit loaded. But I know with the Me Too movement, there's been a lot of positive, you know, action and you know, I think it helps people be a little bit more aware. But then I think it's also kind of divided a lot of people on that topic of fairness. And, you know, well, now it's not fair because, you know, as a guy, I'm afraid to do anything or talk to anyone. And so I feel like it's in some ways really positive, but some ways also really negative. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I have two points on that. The first is I actually was at an event with um, Tarana Burke, the the founder of the hashtag um, MeToo a few months back, and she was talking about just the impact of it, right? Consider the fact that um, the day after the Harvey Weinstein um, allegations came out uh, and the the hashtag came up, 12 million women engaged with that hashtag over a 24-hour period. Twelve million women, and yet, the conversations that we were having weren't about the twelve million women. They were about who's next, who's next, which guys, which industry is going to fall, and who in this industry is going to fall, and you know who in my company. And looking around, so the dynamic that was created immediately became about, um, about. Uh, uh, it, it felt like it was about retribution, as opposed to focusing on the twelve million survivors that were out there who, who were in need of healing, right? And that this experience was a healing experience. And I think people who say, um, particularly men who say, I am, uh, I'm, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can take my junior colleague out to lunch anymore and give them that informal information means to me that they care more about their personal, managing their personal anxiety than they do about building equity and, and creating opportunity for women. Because if they're doing the right thing, they, there should be no reason to worry. Right. Um, and so they're focused more on managing their own anxiety, and, and they're okay with putting that up against whether or not they are de- they're, they are denying somebody a real opportunity to to grow and feel invested in. And that's just completely contrary to what any manager should think, to what any man um, uh, or woman should think about what their role is mm-hmm. um, as a coworker and as, as a colleague. So I think, you know, I think it's a cop-out, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> yeah. um, that that's where the director going. And I also think we have to think about not, you know, our, our focus needs to stop being on the, the next yep. man fall. Certainly there will be, right? Because we've set a new standard or a new yeah, schema yeah. literally in our brains for what acceptable behavior is in the, in the, in the workplace that will have consequences um, if not adhered to. Um, but we have to think about the 12 million women, right? We have to think about what is the work that we need to do to ensure that we're creating systems and practices where 12 million women will not have that experience, right?
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's really helpful and makes a lot of sense. And so we were talking a little bit earlier with uh, Clorinda and she was letting us know that she actually first learned about you on NPR talking a little bit about Starbucks. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit from your point of view, um, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, she was talking about how everyone kind of immediately criticized Starbucks and then they put together a plan and then everyone immediately criticized their plan. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, in this you know topic, you know, thinking about fairness and perception, I was wondering, you know, obviously you have a lot of behind the scenes knowledge there. And if you could share that with us.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, Perception Institute co-created the curriculum for the, um, the, the four hour half day training of Starbucks that Starbucks did with all of their uh, frontline um, teams, 8,000 stores on May 29th. Um, and it, you're right. We were, I did that NPR, um, interview, uh, in large part, to get out out in front of you know what I hope a Starbucks would do in engaging you know in this conversation and to really level set and set expectations that four hours of implicit bias training is not going to change bias among frontline staff. Um, that at best it will create a level of awareness, which is very important, but that. Um, that bias responds to systems and practices, and that unless they're going to ch- change their internal culture, um, and some of the policies that they, that they engage in, um, they're, going to, they're going to continue to have opportunities for people to lean into their bias when they have to make quick decisions. And that's exactly what happened in Philadelphia. They had a policy where a, um, if you were a customer, you, you could use the bathroom or you could sit at a table. Um, and that, that policy was, you know, very fairly clear, but yet it left the manager with discretion as to when they want to want to enforce the policy or not. Now I'm a mom, I've got a six and a nine year old. I can tell you, I've been in many a Starbucks, you know, (laughs) without buying anything to use a bathroom because when a kid has to go, a kid has to go and, you know, and I will just plead and you know, whatever. And I'm sure I look like someone who, you know, perhaps would say, okay, fine, fine, whatever. And if I need to, you know, I'll go back and buy something. But, um, but to deny people you know uh, you always get that discretion to to go in and, and, and use and use um, use a facility, and so I think that that one of the things that was most important about what Starbucks did was that they um, set, reset the policy before the training uh, in order to um, to say a cust- redefine a customer a customer is anyone who um, has been a customer of Starbucks, is a, cust- is a current customer of Starbucks, or could be a future customer of Starbucks. Anybody is like, everybody's a customer. So now you take that away from the manager having to say, you know, um, inter- with respect to um, the policy around the bathroom. You think about where those sites of contestation where you're concerned about, you know, again, the accountability um, and you uh, you create an opportunity to adjust that so you're taking more discretion away so, so people can't rely on bias to do that. That experience, you know, the fact that they were willing to engage in that um, policy work up front, I think, made the entire experience more meaningful and allowed people to the, to then absorb the 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 curriculum in a way. It was a self-guided curriculum where um, uh, managers and they are called the baristas partners um, sat together. There was no no leader in a room, and they were able to work through um, various modules. Um, and a set of Exercises about bias and, and anxiety, and also the structural landscape in which they're they're building um, their own community to think about where I, there were eight thousand stores. So bias in Philadelphia may look a lot different than than um, bias in in Tulsa or you know uh, across the country. So it created a, a very unique opportunity for them both to have a shared learning experience, um, uh, shared language around what bias is and how it's it, it's not. Consistent with the values of a company like Starbucks. Um, And at the same time, it created an opportunity for them to localize their efforts and consider what that work would, would be. Yeah, we're seeing a lot about affirmative action again.
0: And, you know, I think that there's positives and negatives with it, with anything, right? So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what you see the positives and negatives.
2: So I've seen largely positives around affirmative action, um, uh, both for women and for people of color who traditionally haven't had access to, to what we're calling, you know, obviously the the old boy networks, those things that we've been trying to disrupt, those those uh, those biases that have become embedded in a set of practices now that limit our opportunity to uh, to grow in our careers. Those things like, you know, getting in front of clients, access to networks, getting that inside information as to how a, a culture actually works and how to succeed um, so bias um, um, in relationship to affirmative action to me is a very important strong link um, white women by and large have been been the biggest beneficiaries of um, of uh, many of the affirmative action policies and yet um, it is it's been branded as something that is really about race and identity politics and I think that's very unfortunate. Um, the benefits of diversity are incredibly compelling. When you look at the science uh, of difference, when you put diverse teams together and you ask them to solve problems, they actually perform better than those groups that um, that are trained just in that one skill set. There's a study that looks at that that actually had a number of mathematicians come together to solve a math problem, and then a group of folks who you know philosophers and you know scientists and and, and literature you know folks and. They were actually able to come up with an answer to that same problem in a way that was much more innovative and much more interesting. Because when groups are the same, they create Groupthink, right. We default to we use a lot of shortcuts because we kind of know what we're saying or, or we can anticipate what the other person is saying. And our brain is just trying to do those mental leaps really quickly. And we actually don't we may get to an answer, but we may not get to the best answer. Um, on the other hand, when you have diverse groups and your brains are um have to do more work to translate your thinking and experience. You end up creating a better design. It's just plain and simple. Um, we see this often with boards as well, right? When you and you include women um, on uh, corporate boards, there are higher returns, higher earnings. So you know it, this isn't just feel good work. Affirmative action isn't just feel good work. It actually redounds to a very strong business and strategic imperative. So I think that's really really important to consider. The um, uh, with respect to, um, with respect to affirmative action in the news, I think that what I've been heartened by has been the consideration of many universities who have said, you know, that that creating a diverse pool that will reflect a, a diverse America is incredibly, incredibly important. And so, having that set of experiences for anyone who will be a, a future leader becomes incredibly. Uh, incredibly important. And so, you know, those are the positives that I see. I think if there are any negatives, it, it, it has to do with um, the fact that we haven't really been able to um, uh, help people understand and make a case for why diversity and innovation actually matters, why it matters to our country, why it matters to um, um, uh, how it's not zero-sum. Right. right. And that it's not taking away from uh, from someone, but actually really enhancing the, the the broader we and the collective we. And because we haven't allowed people to be traditionally part of that collective we, that's part of the challenge. Right. Do you see affirmative action
0: some, as something that corporations could begin to implement? Um, to me, it seems kind of like it would be an easy leap, but we're not really seeing anyone go there. Um, I don't know. Have you. Spoken to any corporations about that, or do you think it's something that could be on the horizon? Uh,
2: you know, I think that, that corporations consider this all the time. I think that that there there are many corporations who are trying to increase diversity throughout their ranks, and particularly on their you know executive leadership team, or create those pipelines. And I think that that what we've seen in doing this work is that many um, many of our corporate clients are actually doing very well on the recruiting side. Right, mm-hmm. they're doing actually bringing people in has not been the the challenge. It is. Once they are in, what does that inclusion look like that actually builds more equity on the on the leadership teams? And again, there are a number of things that just get in the way of how we see each other, how we our belief that we can be completely objective. Um, In addition, you know, for many corporations that believe themselves to be meritocratic. Meritocratic. I mean, we have to talk about meritocracy if we're going to talk about affirmative action, right? Because there's this assumption that we actually live in a meritocracy, right. and that um, if we uh, that that these policies are in some ways diluting the, the the meritocracy that we have. What we live in is actually uh, a, a set of structures that have benefited many groups over the years because so many groups have been excluded from those processes that it makes it harder for them to advance. So, um, uh, really recent uh, research. Um, by a, um, uh, a social psychologist, I believe, um, with the last name Castilla, looked at meritocratic organizations and um, and both organizations that believe themselves to be, uh, uh, to have a meritocracy, um, but also believe themselves to value diversity. And what they found is in those organizations where there was like a high stu- value structure, um, women, people of color, and people who are foreign born all got paid less. <laughs> Not only that, they also believe themselves to have um, an incredible amount of, of, of objectivity. They believe that they could evaluate people's talent because they lived in a meritocracy, um, which means that they're not recognizing the kind of blind spots that we that we sometimes have when we evaluate people. So there are a lot of kind of ways to understand this this conversation. I think a lot of corporations are trying to tackle it, um, but it, it's got to go a lot deeper in, um, in it's got to go beyond the Rooney rule, which I think is kind of like the, the, the one of the best practices now, or one one of one of what people consider to be the best practices, which is for every position, you see a, you see at least one one person of color, or at least one woman, in order to ensure uh, that you are uh, looking at a more expanded pool. So you're forcing a different conversation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're hiring and promoting and evaluating and creating the opportunities for that person. So we have a lot more work to do on that front. Right.
0: And so maybe it's a little bit more internally focused on you know, promotion structures and how those people are rising up throughout the ranks, not just how they're being brought into the companies themselves.
2: Yeah, we have to know what we're solving for. And it's really hard, you know, as a researcher, what's really important to me is to be able to get inside a place and and help develop some kind of diagnostic for understanding what we're solving for. It's not just getting people in the door. It is, um, it's, it's looking at each process and each protocol and seeing where maybe, where bias or anxiety Maybe be operating in order to, to redesign, you know, to create an intervention and perhaps redesign a policy that will help, um, help us consider how to move that forward. Doctors have been doing this for decades. Doctors have a protocol when you see, you know, a checklist when, when they see you in any, in any realm. And, um, they're not afraid to, to now add these questions of like, you know, uh, gender, um, heart disease may present differently than men. So make sure. We're not just saying she's she's having an anxiety attack. That we're she she actually could be presenting for heart disease. So you should do this study for her as well. Um, whereas you know structurally most of the most of the studies on heart disease have been on men, and so that's all that they've been primed to look at. Once they recognize there's a gender bias in that in diagnosis, they're able to correct for it without feeling like I'm a bad person. It's just this is what we need to address, and so doing that kind of deep. Um, protocol work is really important for any corporation depending on what they're solving for.
0: I think that's really helpful. Um, So obviously some of our listeners will not be present for our workshop today with you. Could you give everyone maybe a quick overview of what we plan to cover? In case that there are things that they could take back to their organizations after they listen?
2: So well, the way we've designed this workshop today has really been um, uh, the beginning of food for thought. We want to have, we want to create a shared experience. So I'm sorry, listeners who aren't there, uh, but a shared experience of awareness of what it actually feels like when your brain um, uh, experiences its own unconscious network, right? So you know, you'll do a couple things where like your brain will do one thing, your body will do something else, and that kind of a little jarring. Um, then we layer on conversations around race and gender so that, um, you know, through a series of studies to help make the case that as much as we want to believe in our own, again, objectivity or our own um, aspiration towards colorblindness or gender blindness, these aren't things that actually serve equity. These are things that don't serve fairness. Um, So we'll be using a series of studies that help us just kind of understand some of the key points from the science. And then I hope to just generate conversations around what it actually means in the the, um, in the workforce here in uh, San Francisco. Great. Well, thank
0: you so much again for joining us today. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'd love to keep this conversation going and want to hear what's on your mind to stay up to date with the Northern California chapter. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Cornette NorCal. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share on social media. And as always, please share your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page under the post
1: for this episode. I'm Melissa Pacey, and I'll talk to you next time.